every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, a warm welcome to Money Talk on Tuesday, the 3rd of October. If you're listening in Hong Kong, I hope you had a great long weekend. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to Peter Lewis Money Talk on Substack or on Facebook, on X, formerly known as Twitter. I'm at Money Talk R3. In today's business and finance headlines, the US government has avoided a federal shutdown after lawmakers in both the House and Senate agreed to a last-minute measure that keeps the government funded until mid-November but leaves out billions of dollars of aid for Ukraine. A bill ensuring funding until the 17th of November received overwhelming support and was signed into law by President Joe Biden minutes before the midnight deadline on Saturday night. The World Bank has warned that Asia faces one of its worst economic outlooks in 50 years as it downgraded its 2024 forecast for GDP growth for developing economies in East Asia and the Pacific. The World Bank said it now expected China's economic output would grow 4.4% in 2024, down from the 4.8% it expected in April, as US protectionism and rising levels of debt pose an economic drag. It also downgraded its 2024 forecast for GDP growth for developing economies in East Asia and the Pacific, which includes China, to 4.5% from a prediction in April of 4.8%. Factory activity in the US contracted by the smallest amount in nearly a year in September in a recovery from the multi-year lows hit in June. The ISM manufacturing PMI rose to 49 in September from 47.6 in the previous month, well above market expectations of 47.8 to reflect the slowest contraction in the US manufacturing sector in 10 months. U.S. stock indices and treasury bonds notched their worst quarters in a year, while the dollar logged its best one, as traders came to terms with the Fed's higher for longer message on interest rates. The S&P 500 finished the month down 4.9% and the third quarter lower by 3.6%. The Nasdaq Composite was off 5.8% in September and down 4.1% for the quarter. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq posted their worst months this year. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Christopher Lee, Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. And in New York this morning, we'll find our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. On Wall Street on Monday, U.S. stocks ended mixed. On the first trading day of the final quarter, the S&P 500 closed unchanged at 4,288. The Dow declined 74 points, or 0.2%, to 33,433. The Nasdaq Composite notched its fourth consecutive positive day, adding 0.7% to close at 13,308. The small-cap-focused Russell 2000 has given up all of its 2023 gains after it fell 1.6% on Monday, leaving it down a third of a percent year-to-date. This marks the first time the index has turned negative in 2023. The sell-off in US Treasuries resumed on Monday following a deal to avert a government shutdown and after better-than-expected manufacturing data. The yield on the 10-year Treasury rose 12 basis points to a new 16-year high of 4.69%. That's a level not seen since July. 2007. The 30-year yield climbed 9 basis points to 4.80%. On Monday, gold continued to slide for a sixth straight day and hit a seven-month low. It lost another 1.1% to end at $1,828 an ounce. 
the US dollar index started October on the front foot, adding 0.8% to cross the 107 threshold to 107.02. The euro hit its lowest point of the year. It slipped 0.9% to reach $1.4.75 and sinking to its lowest level since December. The Japanese yen depreciated a third of a percent to 149.86 yen to the dollar. That's its weakest level since October last year. Markets in China are closed for the Golden Week holidays, reopening on the 9th of October, but the yuan dropped a third of a percent in offshore markets to 7.3224 renminbi to the dollar. Hong Kong markets were closed yesterday and reopened today. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rebounded 2.5% on Friday, reducing the quarterly loss to 5.9%. However, it was still the worst performance among the major global benchmarks. In September, the index lost 3.1%. Looks like the slide's going to continue this morning as well. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 260 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's about 1.4%. Projected to open at 17,553. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com Every Monday to Friday this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk Peter Lewis's Money Talk Let's welcome our Tuesday morning panel of guests we have with us Mark Michelson Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia Morning Mark uh, good morning, Peter. And also joining us here in Hong Kong Christopher Lee Senior Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexandra Investments Morning Chris Good morning, Peter. And Hi. in New York this week, we have our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Woods. Nice to talk with you again, Barry. Thank you very much. Good morning. Let's start in the, in the US. The US government's avoided a federal shutdown after lawmakers in both the House and the Senate agreed to a last-minute measure that keeps the government funded until mid-November but leaves out billions of dollars of aid for Ukraine. A bill ensuring funding until the 17th of November received overwhelming support and was signed into law by President Joe Biden minutes before the midnight deadline on Saturday night. However, it excludes new aid for Ukraine in a blow for Democrats, for whom this was a key demand. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy submitted the bill in defiance of hardliners <coughs> in his own party. Um, Barry, this is all a bit of a mess, isn't it? The markets at least cheered the fact that the government didn't shut down, but it just sounds like this has all been deferred um, until the 17th of November, and we're going to have to go through it all over again. I suppose we will. I mean, this is the way, regrettably, that Washington seems to operate. And yes, I think if you can say anything about this past weekend, it is that Kevin McCarthy emerges stronger. Yes, he has renegades on the far, may I say, lunatic right. But I think that he's going to be able to rein them in. He'll be tested on that in the next 48, 72 hours. But he got the compromise done with Democratic votes. So there we are. It, will it happen again, as you suggest? Probably. Do you think he'll survive? Because there's going to be a, a, a motion to try and oust him, isn't there, from the, uh, from the Speaker's chair? You can never tell. But you can say this, that in past experiences over debt limits and government shutdowns. The Republicans always lose. This renegade group knows that. And if they want to push and thus really hand everything to the Democrats, not just for the rest of this year, but into 2024, an election year, then they would go after McCarthy. I don't think they're going to do that. I think McCarthy will prevail and that this right-wing group will be further marginal. 
but that's just a guess. It is odd, isn't it, when you compare this to previous shutdowns. Previous shutdowns have been sort of Republicans fighting Democrats over some sort of spending issue or overall debt. This seems to be Republicans fighting Republicans. Yeah, that's true. Look, there's no consistency among these various groups. The right-wing Republicans, including the leader, Matt Gates, who comes from a district in the panhandle or western part of Florida with lots of military retirees and military bases. He's going to jeopardize their paychecks, their Social Security. For what? For cutting spending? He's the guy who wants always increased defense spending. So there's no consistency. Yes, McCarthy was bailed out by the Democrats. And that's why one progressive Democrat, which would be the equivalent on their side of the renegade Republican, pulled the fire alarm in a House office building to prevent a vote. That was his theory. It didn't work. So the Democrats bailed out McCarthy. McCarthy's stronger. We'll get back to business. The Ukraine aid money, the Americans already give more than anyone else. That's just delayed. It will happen. Republicans and Democrats want it to happen. Let's see, let's see how this looks from Hong Kong, Mark and Chris. Mark, um, how, how do you view yeah, this? Uh, yeah, here? well, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to stay away from getting into the weeds <laughs> of U.S. politics, but I can't help myself, I guess. No, uh, no I agree completely with, with Barry, and I hope, hope he's right about, about this being settled. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. There's a, big, there's a challenge for the Democrats in the sense that in voting to keep McCarthy, they have to make a decision whether they want to do that or not. Some are going to vote against them. Obviously, the the left side of the Democratic Party, I think several of them will. Others won't. But that, that has implications going forward, too, and what the cooperation means. The other thing is Ukraine, which which Barry mentioned. The um, Although the uh, the member who, who pressed a fire alarm, I think in the end, Ended up voting for the uh, for the for the for the motion anyway. But the one person who didn't on the Democratic side was Mike Quigley, who's from Illinois, from the district that would have represented my relatives, and that was over Ukraine, and that was over support for Ukraine, and that's going to be a continuing issue. That's I think that's going to get worse before it gets better. And what was his position, Mark? What did he want? He he, he just felt that there had to be part of that 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 uh-huh. uh, that supported that had the aid for Ukraine, which wasn't in the final bill, as you know. And so that's going to be a continuing issue because, you know, members of Congress are wavering, not just the Republicans. Yeah, some Democrats as well. You're quite right. There is some wavering. But Kevin McCarthy wants more aid for Ukraine. Almost all Republicans do. There are a few within the Republican Party who are skeptical. You hear the rhetoric of saying, control the southern border, stop the influx before helping Ukraine. Within the Democratic Party, I think most people are solidly behind the president and behind the minority leadership in the House and the majority leadership in the Senate. I think Ukraine aid will go forward. Yeah, I think it'll go forward, too. But I think it'll be more troublesome as time goes on, because there are some progressive ends of the Democrats who still oppose it as well. Chris, 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 from yeah. your, your perspective, from an investment I, I, perspective, how do you look at this? Yeah, thank you. Uh, 
you know, Peter, my two cents worth is the uh, the Republican Party has been so divided since about six years ago, right? Not, no surprise here, right, Barry? And also Mark. But I think they need to stay true the, to the core of uh, what the party really stands for, which is historically over a long period of time, they have been good for businesses, I think. And this is the money talk show, my goodness, right? So, you know, we got to look at how <laughs> is this going to benefit the businesses and what does that mean to our people here in Hong Kong? And um, I was very disappointed that um, people like uh, Mike Gallagher from uh, Wisconsin were so hostile, right, towards uh, Chinese businesses and then was criticizing um, President Biden's uh, approach on limiting uh, U.S. investments. And he felt that Biden was not doing enough. So I think that type of exercise is just so unhealthy that uh, they have really lost their true north to some extent. And I really wish that the Republicans would, uh, you know, start coming back together and really look at how they could really help U.S. businesses do better internationally and really help the uh, struggling Americans in Wisconsin, in Texas, in the deep south. So that's my two cents worth, Peter. Well, Chris, I will say that your two cents make a lot of sense because uh, that's a that's a very eloquent statement as to why there should be a positive business relationship between the two countries. However, Mike Gallagher is really reflecting the bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill. The Democrats, if anything, are more hostile to China than the Republicans, and the Republicans are hostile to Congress, to, to China. So uh, this is a real problem going forward. I don't see any resolution or even progress in the next few months. Yeah, when I just to pile on, I, yeah. I was in, uh, and I agree completely with Chris, Chris's view. It's the view that, for example, the chambers, American chambers, have tried to uh, advocate, especially this year, recently, and frankly, haven't made much headway. I just talked to one of the, one of the leaders of the of the chambers uh, in in Asia, and you know, and he's just frustrated because. A lot of the people and members of this and others who used to at least listen are sort of almost afraid to listen now because you can't step off that 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 talking point that that, that Barry just outlined. Chris, I hope that changes. Chris, when you look at this from an investment perspective, mm -hmm. does it put you off investing in the U.S. when you see these types of shenanigans going on in, in Congress? I mean, the, the credit rating agencies, haven't they? They've raised this issue, right. I think all three of them, saying it, it affects the long-term governability of, of the U.S. and therefore their assessment of the, of the rating of the country. It's a real concern. It is definitely a real concern in terms of being, I think, uh, not... Um, positive over the long term. I mean, the rating agency has downgraded. But again, that's a reactionary move. We know that the uh, uh, default risk is there. And uh, I think, again, back to the money talk topic here, right? So we have to look at what is the upside for U.S. Uh, investors and potentially for foreign investors going into the U.S. And I would just, you know, echo again by saying that the current uh, hostility towards China is very unhealthy. It doesn't really do do any good to both Democrats and Republicans at the street level. I know that the politicians in Washington, you know, are being politicians, but we have to bring a business person into this discussion here. 
And how do they do that? Because this is going to be an election issue, isn't it? Uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the US's approach to China is going to be maybe dominating, one of the themes dominating the 2024 um, election. So how do, and, and businesses are already lobbying and saying, look, some of these measures just don't make sense. They're not good for the country. They're damaging our own investments in China and businesses in China, mm-hmm. but they don't seem to listen. What is it that's going to get them to, to, to take to get them to listen? Well, we really need some uh, rock star CEOs to go in and say, look, you know, some of us are still investing in China. Uh, I can share that uh, Moderna or maybe some of the biotech companies, I think uh, during the COVID period, definitely have put more investment internationally, right? And the uh, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce here in Hong Kong have actually confirmed that Moderna has put more people into Hong Kong. So that is one case and we have some anecdotal evidence that there are people who are looking at the bottom line and trying to invest for the longer term so uh, we just need more of those positive stories and can, can yeah, i have more than i have more than anecdotal evidence a lot yes. of our company a lot of our members are are investing still in china certainly more careful than they were and affected by the by the issues that we just we just mentioned especially in American companies, but they sure are. I mean, I mentioned this before when, when one of our members said, what's the next China? China's the next China, and it is for many companies. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That was a report by McKinsey. I read that a couple of months ago that what is the next China? The next China is China still. Can, can I think regrettably, we don't have a Henry Paulson, who was right. Treasury Secretary, clearly you know, he was always recounting his 50-plus or 100-plus trips to China. He wanted that very close relationship between the business community and the Chinese. We don't have anyone that I can see, with the possible exceptions of Timothy Cook mm-hmm. at Apple and Elon Musk at Tesla. Those are the two American companies most heavily involved in the Chinese economy, but I am very skeptical that either one of them wants to get out front on this issue. What about Jamie Dimon? He's talking about retirement. He's a well-known figure, isn't he? He's also obviously got a lot of his company's got a lot of investment. He's got gravitas. He would he would fit the bill. I just don't see uh, Jamie Dimon doing that. If he does, I think he would be applauded and, of course, criticized. Can- yeah, well, that's that's the issue. I think he he's. He's tried and others have tried and JP Morgan has a has a very good case to to make what you what what worked for us or may not work anymore in the 1990s was was emphasizing how important this relationship was to the mm-hmm. states, to the individual economies in the US. And it still is to a great extent. It doesn't carry as much weight that argument anymore, although mm-hmm. it should, but really it's gotta be pointed out where it really helps you individually on the bottom line of course members of congress represent those areas so it should be important to them that might be uh, might be optimistic yeah Yeah, i would now one other sort of like inconsistent uh move by the u.s government which is the um, the china plus one strategy that i think they've been advocating uh clearly i think uh, a lot of uh, politicians are now becoming very friendly towards vietnam and not having any problem with the uh, U.S. companies moving their manufacturing base to Vietnam. But again, I mean, if we look at Vietnam, it is another single-party communist state, okay? <laughs> 50 years ago, we lost thousands and thousands of Americans in the Vietnam War, 
Okay, and now because of economics and also uh, business reasons, the politicians in Washington are friendly again towards Vietnam. So I don't know um, how you know the wind will change again for to be friendly towards the Chinese Communist Party again. Maybe it's just going to take some time. Let, let me let me make a quick comment on that. Having worked with Vietnam for over thirty years, Vietnam is very attractive. I mean, there are a lot of issues, and you just cited some of them. And, and the U.S. has been moving toward Vietnam for some time. That's not just recently, and it was bipartisan. Even right. in, in reestablishing relations with Vietnam, it was led by a lot of Republicans, like like John McCain and right. and, uh, and and others who were were veterans of Vietnam because they see value of it, not only economically from a business standpoint, but because mm -hmm. Vietnam doesn't like China very much. And that's, you know, that's a very important point as far as the Americans are concerned. So there are big problems in Vietnam and they're starting to starting to have some issues. A lot of companies are having issues because things have moved in too far, too fast. And, you know, the the um, employment's not up to it. A lot of the other aspects of Vietnam aren't. But at the same time, it's going to continue to be one of those alternatives for sure. Mm -hmm. Barry, let, let me switch a bit to the U.S. economy. We had data out overnight, factory activity, the ISM uh, manufacturing PMI, contracted by the smallest amount in nearly a year in September. The PMI rose to 49 from 47.6. It seems, doesn't it, that all the data that we've been seeing recently seems to be showing the same thing. The, the U.S. economy is doing pretty well and, and better than people were forecasting, certainly at the beginning of this year. Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about that. How long will that continue? We don't know. But um, you've got an East U.S. economy that's growing at a two, two and a half percent annual rate. You've got unemployment that has not been rising. You've got jobs being created. You've got the inflation rate coming down. But you've got a stock market that has had a terrible September. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is an important signal. My own guess on this is that when the Federal Reserve met a week ago, and the message was we would not be reducing rates three to four times in 2024, but maybe only two. The market took that very negatively because they want interest rate cuts, not any more rises. I do think probably that the evidence suggests that the rises are over. But how long will this good economy, Peter, last? It's anyone guess. The narrative in the Fed certainly seems to have changed, doesn't it? It's no longer um, how many more rate rises there should be. It's how long should they keep rates at this level? And then we saw that from uh, Michael Barr today, the Federal Reserve's Vice Chairman of Supervision, saying they're going to need to stay elevated for a while to bring inflation back to the 2% target. That seems to be the discussion now, isn't it, amongst Fed members? And markets seem to have noticed that and are starting to believe the Fed that they mean it when they say uh, higher for longer yes i think that's true but um the fed will will act given what they're seeing in the data so far the data have been positive but i think interest rate rises are off the table you know there the expectation would be there would be one more by the end of the year i doubt it and i'll bet my colleagues on this panel would say the same thing i doubt it too I doubt it too. It is very, very clear to me that they did not move in September, that there will be no more rate hikes. And not only that, I mean, to Barry's point, we're now talking about how soon they will start cutting, right? So the direction has completely changed. 
But what then, our members are what our members are looking at, and it's been raised many times, is exactly what Chris just said. When are they going to start moving the other direction? And the hope was by the end of this year. Now, frankly, it doesn't look like it. It looks like sometime next year because it makes a difference for them, it makes a difference for their companies, it makes a difference for their their outlook and all all sorts of other issues. And of course, for Hong Kong, as we well know. But look at what this is doing to the markets. U.S. Treasuries, they uh, they had a really bad October. They fell even further on Monday. The 10-year yield now is 4.69%, a 16-year um, high. The 30-year yield at 4.8%. People are talking about the mortgage rates going above 8% um, in the U.S. This surely is going to have a real economic impact, isn't it? Doesn't it sort of increase the likelihood of a recession? I think it does. But... There's some distance to travel. I'm thinking of that. Uh, there's quite a distance between the, the cup and the lip in terms of uh, that was Shakespeare, I think, but I had it wrong. The fact is, if rates remain high, housing is going to suffer. There's enough commercial real estate in distress that you could have some bank problems. So I think the short term outlook is pretty uncertain. Mm -hmm. Chris, what, what does this mean? Rates at a 16-year high now, 4.69% um, on the 10-year. From a, an investment perspective, how does this change things? It um, really, I think, gives people a pause in terms of uh, investing in the stock market, right? Because if you do not think if you're cash in the bank, you're earning pretty decent rate. So mm -hmm. why are you turning on your risk-on strategy and try to invest in the stock market? I mean, to Barry's point earlier, September was one of the worst months. It did not do well in terms of the stock market performance. So a lot of investors are really re-evaluating the, um, the risk-adjusted return uh, that they are going to get. That's why we're not seeing a lot of a positive uh, sentiment in the stock market now, because you can easily earn 5% just by putting your money in a regular bank deposit or some kind of money market instruments with very low risk. And one of the reasons why it's doing this, it's not just the economic data, it's also the fact that there is so much new treasury issuance going on. There's going to be another $1 trillion worth of, of debt issued um, this year. Now, that's having to be rolled over at much higher rates. Presumably, that is having an impact on uh, on the U.S. Um, on the on the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Treasury because it means that you know they've got to finance that um, and interest expense is becoming a much bigger part of government's overall expenditure. Humongous, absolutely, and it's going to rival the defense budget. So <laughs> you know it's very hard to make a case that the United States in 2024 is going to grow by anything more than one percent. Mm. Is this going to become an election issue, the amount of debt uh, that, that now the U.S. has, and in particular, the cost of servicing that debt? Because that's what's important, isn't it? It's not so much how much debt you have. It's uh, the cost of servicing that debt. Now, of course, the U.S. government can afford it, but it's taking up a bigger and bigger part of the budget. Well, that's correct. Yeah. And I think uh, that will be a political game. You know, who gets blamed? Who's who will the voters blame? Will they blame the Democrats or the Republicans for the, the big deficit and the growing amount of debt? But I think and debt the, could become a big issue. And the growth, the growth number is very cited. I don't disagree with it. I, I think you're unfortunately probably right, but it's an election year. This is a really low growth number for an election year. And 
whatever the reasons are, I suspect it will become a, a political issue, especially for the Republicans who will who will maybe give some reasoning that doesn't make altogether all sense, but it doesn't matter because people will feel it and they'll feel that they're they're not as well off as they were. Do our, our voters noticing that? Are our voters sort of noticing the amount of debt? It's not an issue that is typically something that voters talk about, is it? They only start talking about these things when Short it answer, hits no, them in the pocket. Short answer, no, not yet. No, <laughs> they have no, not. No, they have not. No, no, no. That. They have not. I mean, this is, this is a big topic. And I watched the Republican uh, debate a week ago, and uh, none of the uh, participants mentioned this, right? They're trying to Absolutely. hide it. They are trying to hide this, but Peter, you are absolutely acutely, you know, aware of this issue. Uh, but a lot of Americans are not aware of this issue, and so they, I think, uh, diverted the issue to national security and protecting Americans from China, and so they have not been really focused on what really matters, which is servicing debt and also reducing the deficit and really getting back to business. Mm. And, and of course, yeah, the economy, just one point, the economy is a big issue for Americans. Now you define that as not but it always is one of the big issues. So this will have an impact. Whether they focus on the debt of the Americans. Chris, the other area, of course, where this is having an impact is the U.S. dollar, isn't it? Because the U.S. Mm -hmm. dollar just keeps on rallying with these bond yields um, going yeah. higher and higher. The Japanese yen is at the lowest level um, of the year. So is the euro at the lowest level of the year. Right. This, this is having an impact everywhere, isn't it? But particularly here in Asia, it does have a big impact here on emerging markets when you've got this sort of strength in the dollar. Very strong dollar, and uh, not only dollar is very strong, dollar interest rates are very high also, and also uh, commodity prices like oil is also at historic high. I mentioned that I was in the U.S. recently, and in California, oil prices at the gas pump could more, be more than $7 per gallon. So this is just one of those uh, very strange, uh, I think, uh, situations that we are in with number one strong dollar number two very high interest rates in u.s dollar and number three very high oil prices and commodity prices so makes it very hard to invest in emerging stock markets like uh, china hong kong and the rest of asia so that's why a lot of investors are really on the sideline at this point mm. Barry, this is something that uh, voters notice is, is gas prices, isn't it? When they start moving back up again, um, everyone is talking about it. Well, that's true. And they're pretty high. And particularly in California, where they have special taxes in addition. But, um, you know, maybe oil is going to come down and we're certainly down sharply today. Mm. Now, um, let me talk about Asia with you. Asia faces one of its worst economic outlooks in 50 years, the World Bank has warned, and it downgraded its 2024 forecast for GDP growth for developing economies in East Asia and the Pacific. The bank cut its forecast for China's growth next year, citing a string of weak indicators for the world's second biggest economy. The World Bank said it now expected China's economic output would grow 4.4% next year, down from the 4.8% it was previously forecasting back in April, as US protectionism and rising levels of debt pose an economic drag. 
the bank pointed to Chinese resale sales tumbling to below pre-pandemic levels, stagnant house prices, increased household debt and lagging private sector investment. And it also downgraded its 2024 forecast for GDP growth for developing economies in the East Asia and Pacific region. That includes China to 4.5% from a prediction in April of 4.8%. Uh, Mark, a pretty gloomy forecast, isn't it? But is, is that being um, reflected by what your members are seeing and doing um, in the emerging markets around the region? It, it, it is, although many of them are doing quite well in Southeast Asia as a whole. You know, so in that sense, that's sort of a bright spot. And India, you know, to 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 a greater extent as well. China, as I said, they're still there. And look, if China grows at five percent or four point five percent or whatever it's still on a strong base and a lot of those areas are are pretty important to the companies that are that are that are operating what i don't understand be interested to hear from chris and barry is why the the china forecast for this year didn't change for either the imf or the world bank they're Mm -hmm. still at five percent or over five percent we've been at four point six percent for some time for several months actually and all the indicators they they cite, including the Beige Book, uh, China's Beige Book survey, suggests mm-hmm. that they're they're pretty weak even at this point. So that's the part I don't understand. I you know I I do uh, I do basically uh, basically agree with the the outlook for 2024. Chris, yeah, the you- outlook has been weak uh, for Asia. And to your point, uh, Mark, about the Beige Book, I do have I think a lot of uh, institutional investor clients who tend to have more, I think, um, uh, trust in the private sector, sort of like independent data collection companies like the China Beige Book and their analyses and all that, because they tend to be more independent and they tend to, I think, um, have more, uh, I think, uh, independent judgment. And they also have very good people, I think, working for them. I have looked at their products before. And so the the China numbers are low, and I would personally put a four percent to five percent range in term in terms of its growth. And uh, so that's the negative news. I uh, I do have one positive uh, piece of news to share, which is you know this uh, Golden Week uh, holiday that we are enjoying here in Hong Kong means that the stock market in China won't open until like uh, October. <laughs> And that's the good news. <laughs> the stock market well, the, open. the good news here is that uh, while the boardroom tables are empty, nobody is having any uh, business meetings, but the kitchen table meetings are happening. So all these families are getting together, they are traveling, there will be more than 800 million trips, okay, across China. And uh, Family members are possibly going to talk about whether they buy a new car or they buy something else. And if you have seen the BYDs on the street, these are pretty nice machines. I would love to own one. And uh, I know there has been some uh, negative news from Reuters and others about the 800 million or maybe 600 million unsold flats. And they are just, I think, uh, flooding the market. But I think what the government is really trying to do from Beijing and the CCP is really trying to stimulate consumption by consumers. So if people are buying cars and they are taking trips and they're eating out at restaurants and they're spending money, um, that's a good news. That's a good news. So I do have some, uh, uh, you know, hopes 
that over this period that I could be wrong, but I am hoping that after the golden week, we'll see some very, very positive sentiment. It's going to be important, isn't it? The government's putting a lot of uh, a lot of onus on this golden week holiday that consumption is going to be boosted and not just in terms of traveling and going out to restaurants, but buying big ticket items like new cars, maybe buying a home. Um, because obviously this yeah. is a, a big week for home sales um, as mm-hmm. well. The, the problem is the, the property market is pretty much in the doldrums. Do you think um, we're, mm. we're going to be pleased with what we see at the end of this mm. golden week? Well, I would build on the point you mentioned earlier, Peter, about potentially buying homes in addition to just buying cars, right? So uh, I know there's a lot of supply, uh, but I think culturally we should not forget that the average Asian family, right, would consider buying homes for their children, and they would also consider buying homes for investment purposes, like collecting rent, because the number of investment products in China are very limited. There's not enough mutual funds and ETFs and all the other, you know, fancy derivatives and structured products available. Mm. They either keep their assets in real estate or they keep their in bank accounts, in bank deposits, yeah. right? So I think there will be um, demand. And so I think there is a reason why there are many, many more homes available, because culturally, this is one of the very popular investment instrument. It's not just for living, despite what some politicians say, but it's also for investing for the long term. But it is. A- I, I, agree. I, I, I agree with Chris, although the indicators such as the informal Bloomberg survey suggest that that's not going to happen at least this year. But I agree that's that's got to be the the trend going forward, and 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 property will come back in some form or another. It's just when it does and to what degree. But there is a massive oversupply, isn't there? When there's yeah. six hundred thousand homes um, on the market for a population of what one point four billion, huge, huge mm-hmm. oversupply, and somehow uh, yeah. that inventory has got to be cleared, and we've got to find the right price to clear it at, not the artificial prices that Beijing keep home prices at through through the controls on developers, you know, lowering prices. We really need to find out what is the real clearing price of these homes if there's going to be an end to this property crisis. That's right, 600 million units. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's an astonishing a, amount, isn't it, of oversupply? And I don't think it's just homes. I think I've mentioned this before in a previous one. But when I was in Shandong province uh, uh, last month, I saw major hotels, 1,000-room hotels that were standing there. Nobody's in them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, maybe eventually when their company when the company their factories and when companies have have their people there then they start to fill up but tourists aren't coming and these would be chinese tourists and others maybe it'll happen but i think this isn't only there it's uh, various places in china that have to think about those kind of uh, those kind of issues as well that's right yeah that's a that's a business decision uh, Mark. i mean yeah. you're right in pointing out that uh, if you built a nice hotel in the middle of uh, nowhere <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> there <luck>. you are <laughs> Barry, look, looking at the China economy from, from over there, we, we seem to have a mixed picture depending upon the surveys. As Chris mentioned, the private surveys, which a lot of people rely on, are, are quite gloomy, whereas the official surveys um, seem to be more positive. And we saw that in the PMI data on China's economy. The Kaishin, um, the Kaishin Purchasing Managers Index uh, fell uh, for the, for the, to the lowest level in seven months, whereas the, the official figures from the National Bureau of Statistics are showing a pickup um, in activity. 
I can only assume that the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have a difficult time with their China forecasts because they have to clear that or at least run it past the Chinese executive directors. And there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about data. And mm. um, I, clearly, if they're saying 5% for GDP growth for China for all of 2023, they're assuming that um, there's going to be a rapid pickup after this golden week. Mm. Let me finish by asking you about Hong Kong, actually, because it's a slightly interesting situation here, isn't it, over the, the sort of the first part of the Golden Week holidays. We've had something like 600,000 mainland visitors coming into Hong Kong, but then about 1 million Hong Kong people have left to go elsewhere, mainly to uh, to mainland China, but also overseas. So there's a sort of a net um, output of visitors over over the weekend so far. What I mean, we've, been, we've been hoping for a real influx, haven't we, here in Hong Kong, of people who are going to spend a lot of money, particularly on the nighttime economy. Um, how do you think that's going? Not as good as uh, it was uh, expected to be. I mean, I know the government has uh, been promoting this uh, you know, nightlife uh, campaign. And uh, so I, I see that uh, some of the young people have gone out and uh, have enjoyed the fireworks on October 1. But I'm getting old. I stay home. And so this has not been as um, efficient or effective as uh, they had hoped. So I I think uh, maybe by uh, by Christmas and also Chinese New Year, we'll see some uh, uptake. But mm. at this point, maybe it's still early for the nightlife campaign to be effective. Mark? Yeah, and the, the well, the tourists coming in. I think that's good news. There have been a lot of a lot of tourists, especially from the mainland, but most of them I don't think will go to Long Kwai Fong or or Soho. You know, frankly, they aren't they aren't the major users of of those nightlife areas. So they have to look for other ways to uh, to reinvigorate. And there's so many uh, restaurants and other things that are closed in in that area, and some of some of which have just closed. And so that's one of the one of the issues. Of course, part of that's because rents have gone up and the uh, clientele isn't there. I, I take it, uh, it, I, if you look at the Lang Kwai Fong area, the, the, one of the main nightlifes here, I take it as a bad sign when the, even the 7-Eleven has closed down in Lang yeah. Kwai Fong. That's not not a good indicator of how things are going, is it? Because that, that was a major source of drinks for many people who didn't want to pay the prices elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, great to have your thoughts there. Thank you very much indeed this morning. You heard Mark Michelson, who's chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Foreign Augustine and Alexander Investments. Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent and writer and broadcaster. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. And later in the show, I'll chat with Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.